Everybody, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Shout out to Alan. That was a wonderful scripture reading. And we like just told him to do that right before service started. So good for Alan. Also, I was talking to Alan a couple of weeks ago during World Kids Camp. And we were talking about Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. And Alan was like, yo, I've been trying to be like Jesus my entire life. And I read chapter 1, and it said that he had white hair. And we look at that. We're both just like Jesus. I have white hair. He has white hair. I'm just like Jesus. Look at that. So who cares about sanctification, holiness? All you got to do is have white hair, and you're just like Jesus, according to Alan. That's the theology of Alan Mitch. You know what I'm saying? Um, but no, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was very funny. And Alan going to have us all out here dyeing our hair white to be like Jesus. I feel like that's going to be the new trend of Jake as well. Um, Alan's a great guy. Uh, very funny dude. If you talk to him, I encourage that as well. So we are, I think we're now in the, it's the third church we're in right now, third church. Uh, so we're about halfway through this sermon series, and today we're talking about the church in Pergamum. So Scott was asking me earlier in the week, so how's it going? Like, how's prep going? Like, how, how you thinking about it? And I was like, it's pretty straightforward. And then after you read what Alan just read, it doesn't sound all that straightforward, does it? Uh, <laughs> it's straightforward to me, I guess. So we'll see how it lands today. I read it, and I was like, okay, you know, Jesus, I feel like you're telling us pretty specific things, so we'll see how it goes. Um, but let's go to God in prayer, and then we'll dive into the word. God, we thank you so much for the glory, the majesty, and the wonder of your word. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, who encourages us, who refines us, who convicts us, so that we can be all that we have been called and created to be in you. So God, we thank you in advance for what you're going to do through your word this morning. I pray that you bless us with revelation, inspiration, conviction, and encouragement as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Just for a few minutes of your time, church, I want to tag this text, uncompromising faith. Uncompromising faith. So the situation in the city of Pergamum called for Jesus to introduce himself with this stunning image, right? He says, I'm going to come to you with a sword coming out of my mouth, right? And, and, and this image is a reminder of the vision that he gave to John in chapter 1, right? So we've seen this image before, but the question becomes, why does he, why does he present this image specifically to this church? And that's going to be sort of the crux of, 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 of our sermon this morning, of our teaching this morning, right? That question, why this specific image to this church? Well, number one, the sword is a metaphor for what is going to be coming out of the mouth of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, he is going to judge the wicked justly, right? So the theme of this image really is Jesus will be the eschatological and end-time judge. But a key point here is that Jesus is a just judge, he's a good judge, and he's a faithful judge. Right. So judge is not simply meant to spark scare, uh, fear or make us scared. Him being a judge is really meant to remind us of how gracious he is, but also how serious he is about the end time. Right. How serious he is about how we live our lives now in, in, in light of how we're going to be 
going to heaven one day or going to eternal damnation one day, right? So he's talking in those terms, and he's navigating that tension, trying to make sure that we understand what the stakes are as we live our lives as Christians. And also, when you look at the, the city of Pergamum, right, this is a city, and when you look at this specific situation, this is a city, Jesus is going to talk about it in a minute, right, that was extraordinarily pagan, right, secular sort of for our terms. So this city, right, did, did not have any kind of Christian cultural context at all. So when we think about the Christians living in this specific city, Jesus presents them with this image to remind them that even though you're living in this context, the folks in that community are not going to be the only ones that will be judged. Because it's easy for us to think, okay, so they're non-Christians, right? They're not following God's will, so obviously they will be judged. No, it's not just them, those who persecute Christians and kill Antipas, right? But it's also those who are also in Christian communities, right? You also have to watch how you carry yourself. Because how you carry yourself, how you live your life, that will also be judged, right? So, we, so that's something that we also have to remember um, specifically in this context. Let's, let's dive into the text. Verse 13. Verse 13, let's, let's pull up the, uh, what do we call it, a scrolly Bible? That's what it's called, scrolly Bible. Let's pull up verse 10. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. First words that Jesus says to him, I know. Right? I know. Now, I love these first two words. Because remember, in chapter 1, when he gives that vision to John, John sees Jesus in the middle or in the midst of the seven lampsteads. Y'all remember that? And the seven, seven golden lampsteads. So Jesus is in the middle of everything happening in those churches. So these first two words, I know. Jesus is saying that I know the subtle nuances and complexities of your situation and of your local context, right? I know everything that is happening to you, and I see you holistically. And, and I think that is a bridge for us today because when Jesus looks at our lives, corporately and individually, Jesus says to you and I, I know. I know the subtle nuances, complexities, and messiness of your life. And because I know it so intimately, because I know it so well, guess what? I know the way out. I know how to guide you. I know how to lead you. I know how to counsel you, right? So if you have ears, listen to me and how I can counsel you through the complexities and the nuances of your life, just like I'm counseling this church. So I know. Now, what are the complexities of this specific context? He says, I know where you dwell and where Satan's throne is. So continuing from last week with the church in Samaria, Jesus identifies the true enemy of the church as Satan. I love this, actually, right? Because I think sometimes as Christians, we can underestimate or forget the real enemy behind so many things happening in our lives. And Jesus says here specifically, Satan's throne is in the city where you live. Why does he say this? Here, 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 here are two things. So when you look at this specific context in Pergamum, right, 
Pergamum was the first city in Asian in, in Asia Minor, right, to build a temp to build a temple for emperor worship. First city to do that. So they literally had a temple where you go to 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 worship the emperor. And they also was the first city to sort of establish a religious cult where they worshiped this god called Acephalus. And Acephalus was known to be a god of healing, and his symbol was, get this, a snake. It was a serpent, right? So quite literally, Jesus sees this city as building an altar to worship an emperor and to worship a god in the form of a serpent, right? So that's where Satan is, right? The, the devil has literally set, set camp here. And that, there's actually a picture I want to show y'all here real quickly. Let's see if we can get that up. There we go right here. So this is a picture of Pergamum right here, right? And you can see in the middle, that's the temple. And you also can see subtle nuances. Y'all see that black? That's actually smoke coming out right there from, 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 from sacrifices being, being done to the idol, right? The emperor and also Acephalus. So Jesus is saying, I know where you live. And I know that it's extraordinarily hard to be a Christian in this here place, right? In fact, you deserve credit for being a Christian in this place. And that actually gets to the first stage of how Jesus corrects. Like, check out what he does. Let's, let's, let's go back to verse 13 real quick. Verse 13. Check out what he does. He says, I know where you live. You live uh, where Satan's throne is, yet... You hold fast to my name, and you did die, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So before Jesus gets to the sin, before he gets to the correction, he encourages. He affirms. He says, I see you. I know your context. I know your situation. I know that you've been working hard. I know that you have been honoring my name when it's really hard to honor my name. I know what's at stake for you when you say you are a child of mine. And yet you've been doing this. So he's encouraging them. He's commending them because I know how hard it is. This is what a just and good judge will do. He's not just going to just jump right to you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to. No, no, no. I want to see you in the totality of where you are. I want to meet you where you are. And that is exactly how Jesus meets you and I, right? When he wants to correct us, when he wants to, 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 to counsel us, he first starts by saying, hey, I see you, my child. I see you, my followers. I know what you've been going through. I know that you've been working hard. I know what you've been enduring. I know it's been really hard. And I see that. I commend you for it. But there's also some things in your life that need some attention, right? And I cannot just ignore these things because that is blocking you from becoming all that you are supposed to be. So, so he acknowledges this, right? He encourages and he says, I see that you have not denied me in a context where it would be easy to deny me, right? So he starts off with encouragement and affirmation. Then we go to verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. Uh-oh. You have some there who hold the to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel 
so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nickelodeons. Yeah, it sounds like Nickelodeons to me, actually. I never I just say that. I just say that. I think I asked Scott how to say it. He says he said it's how you say it. Um, so yeah, Nick at Nick at night or something like that, right? Um, that's how you say it, Nick, Nickelodeon. But here's what's fascinating about this, right? So, <laughs> Balaam. Who is Balaam? Balaam is actually an Old Testament false teacher who tripped up the Israelites in the book of Numbers. Numbers 25 and 31 is where you're going to see Balaam, right? And Balaam's impact was so immense on the Israelite community in terms of false teaching and really being a stumbling block for Israel that Balaam has become a a, a, a complete category of false teaching, right? So when you think false teaching and when Jesus sees false teaching happening in this community, he automatically goes to Balaam. Right? He's like, you're letting Balaam trip you up just like he trips up your ancestors. Right? So that's Old Testament context. And then, he's, and then he identifies specific folk in that specific context, which are the Nickelodeons. Right? The Nickelodeons are saying, the Nickelodeons are these false teachers that are really, really trying to advance. And what they're really trying to say, church, is this they're trying to say that it is okay, right, for you to. To, to have some relationship or to practice in subtle, small ways what the culture is doing, what the pagan culture and what pagan religion is doing. It's okay if you engage just a little bit, right? Because as long as you say you're a Christian, as long as you continue to say Jesus is Lord, then you can, you can, you can maneuver a little bit. You can compromise a little bit just so that you can get by. And Jesus was like, nah, fam, that ain't it. That's not the move at all right? Tolerance is not what I'm about. Jesus is actually very intolerant of what they're doing. And and, and he he identifies two things. He's right. He says, I don't like how you're eating food sacrificed to idols and how you practice sexual sexual immorality. Now, in this context, eating food sacrificed to idols, right, was really a hard thing for them to resist. Why is that? Because in that culture, it was cultural practice for citizens to go to the temple and eat food sacrificed to idols. Like, it was, it was expected that everyone did that. So if you did not do this, that would lead to economic and social ostracism, right? People would look at you as an outcast. So it would be hard for you to get a job, to keep a job. It would be hard for you to just walk in the streets and not be harassed or bullied. So... You can in some ways see these Christians saying, you know what, if I just eat a couple of pieces of meat, that'll make my life a whole lot easier, right? And I I imagine myself in Dallas, Texas, in this situation, imagining that that Dallas is a pagan land, um, which, you know, depending on who you ask, maybe it is. It is land land of the cowboys, so maybe in this place it is a pagan land. Um, (laughs) I knew, I knew somebody would, would get that one right there, right? But I'm imagining this, right? I'm imagining living in a pagan land in Dallas, and I'm imagining these Texans building up idols. And I, I said, what idols will we build in Dallas? I said, we'll probably build a cow for brisket, probably have a frying pan, that'd probably be an idol, and a stick of butter. I said, I said those, those would probably be our three, our three idols, right? Those, those are the things that we probably will worship in Dallas. And I can imagine walking by a temple, 
smelling some barbecue. My family is like, yo, Jay, you want some, you want some, man? I'm like, you know what? Them ribs do smell good. Matter of fact, man, go ahead and put me a couple ribs on the plate, man. Go ahead and put me a couple ribs. Give me some, give me some brisket. While you're at it, give me some macaroni and cheese. Put some sausages on there. Because they're saying, like, if I just eat a little bit, it'll make my life easier. If I compromise a little bit, right, my family won't be harassed. I won't be harassed. My life will be so much easier. So I just concede a little Like, I know they fake. So I just concede a little bit. But Jesus is like, nah, I get the rationale, I get the logic, but that's not okay. Why? Why is it not okay, Lord? Because here's the thing. Jesus is saying, I'm not okay with you eating, I, eating meat that's being sacrificed to dead gods. Right? That's just not okay. And he also is saying that I'm obsessed with truth. Truth is very important to me. And the truth of the matter is, when you're eating these, 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 these meats sacrificed to gods, right, you're compromising in such a way to where you're now susceptible, susceptible to their false ideas entering into your consciousness because you're in that space, right? You're, you're listening and you're hearing all of these false truths. And, 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 and you're literally immersing yourself in many ways to these false ideas. And, 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 and if you're compromising in these ways, it's a slippery slope. Because if I eat a little bit of meat now, I might eat a little bit more, then a little bit more. And then it might lead to me doing other things that the culture wants me to do just so I could be accepted. Right? And as much as Jesus hates political oppression, poverty, right, all these broken things in the world. What he hates even more is, is falsehoods entering into our lives and us believing them. Because what that does, church, is it, it, it allows us to be enslaved by sin. Because if I'm doing things that are against God, that are against the Bible, that are against the Word of God, right, that means that the more I compromise, the more I'm going further and further and further away from the one who saved my life, from the one who can actually make me whole, right? He's a jealous God. He said that you cannot have any other gods in your life but me. And as, as hard as it is, the stakes are so high that even if you compromise and sacrifice a little bit, those compromises have eternal ramifications, right? They have spiritual ramifications, so you can't do it, right? And I actually want to just, just for a moment, go through the arguments. I, wanna, I really want to dig into this, right? Because if we're honest with ourselves, in our own lives, we also can make concessions. Mm. We also can make compromises, especially when it seems so small, right? Especially when it seems like I'm, I'm, I'm definitely still a Christian, but this ain't too bad, right? This won't hurt too much. It's like that line of thinking is dangerous. So let's walk through this. So when it comes to sacrificed foods, here's the arguments that the Nickelodeons will make. They'll be like, look. I know, right? I dug myself in a hole calling the Nickelodeon. I dug myself in a hole with that one. <laughs> but here, here, here's what they would say. He said, look, 
We know that these idols are made, are made of wood and stone. We know that these idols are not real, right? So eating food sacrificed to these idols do nothing, right? Because it's not real. And Jesus is like, oh, back up. So in first century, in the first century context, anytime someone invited you over to their home and you shared a meal with them, it was actually very, very important, right? It wasn't as casual as we look at it today. So if someone's at your house and you're eating at their table, it was almost like you're entering into a mutual covenant with them, right? You're, you're bonding with them in such a way that you're, that, that you're saying that we're going to almost be family, right? I'm bonding with you in that series of ways. So Jesus is saying that when you eat these meats sacrificed to idols, you're bonding with another God. That's what you're doing. And I just cannot have that, right? And, and, and what you also don't realize is that there are unseen spiritual forces behind these gods. Because what Satan is doing, right, he is, he is, he is promoting these false ideologies, these false ideas through the worship of these gods. Right? So the people think they're worshiping whatever they're worshiping, like they're serpent of symbolism, right? But what they're really worshiping is a lie. Because Satan is lying to them. And he's getting them to believe in something that is absolutely not true. So behind every, every broken institution, every evil action is the lie of Satan. Right? Because, because even in this context, right? Outwardly, Political officials, right, their pagan neighbors, they might be persecuting these Christians. But in the background, working everything out, scheming, strategizing, it's Satan. Lying to people, saying this is what it means to live a true life. This is how you find success. This is what revenge means, right? He, he's, 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 he's literally scheming, tricking people into believing that Every way you go is right as long as it's not God's way. And people believe this, right? So anytime you can see or you make concessions, right, you are allowing the lie of Satan to enter into your consciousness, enter into your spirit, and that is dangerous. It's so dangerous. And you cannot allow that to happen. So Jesus is saying, you, 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 you're not just sacrificing to idols. You're sacrificing to lies, false ideas that Satan is putting up. And those kind of concessions, I just cannot allow. Cannot allow it. Right? So, that, so, 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 that, so, that, so that's the first point. And then he goes into um, sexual immorality. Now, this is interesting. So at these festivals and banquets, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a family reunion vibe. Let's just put it that way. It wasn't like community meal that we're going to have next week. You know, it wasn't like that at all, right? They weren't just eating and uh, being merry, right? So they was doing some wild stuff. It was just wild things happening at these festivals. And, 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 and what usually would happen was they eat, they sacrifice, and then they start doing some sexually immoral stuff. And what these false teachers would say is this, when it comes to this, when it comes to this specific thing. He, they would say something along these lines. They would say, you know... It's just a body, right? All a body is is biological material. That's all it is, right? One day, 
we are going to be set free or liberated from our bodily existence. So therefore, you can do anything you want to please your body. That just sounds kind of 21st century like in some ways, right? And Jesus is saying, ah, you, 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 you're missing it, right? The false teacher is trying to compel you to say that the body is merely a house for the soul. So the soul is all that matters. So as long as your soul is intact, you can do whatever you want, you can do whatever you want with your body. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So in the New Testament, the Greek word for body is soma, S-O-M-A, right? And, 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 and soma really describes sort of the, 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 the macro level implication of what a body is. What, what is it? So a body is not merely the material, right? But it's also the imperishable the imperishable material, right? So the, the, the mind, the personality, and the soul, of course. So, so, so Soma says that the real self is the body, right? So therefore, what I do to my body, I do to myself. So, 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 so in, in many ways, right, whatever, I'm, whatever I decide to do with my body, it's bringing the, it has something to do with the inner and the outer coming together, and it's the, it's the whole person. It's the entirety of a person. So therefore, what I do with my body has everything to do with my soul, which is why God puts spiritual parameters around what we do with our body, right? Because when, 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 when I take my body and join it with someone else, I am, it, it, it is a connection of the soul. It is a connection of the spirit. It is a sacred act and a sacred thing. So therefore, there are spiritual, there are spiritual ramifications of what we do with our bodies, specifically when it comes to, set, to, the, to the act of sex. So therefore, God says, no, it's not your body. No, it's not just your body, but it's a soul there. It's a spirit there. And, 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 and even more importantly, I created your body to be used for the glory of my, my will, my kingdom. And that is why it's important what you do, right? So don't buy into this mess that they're, that they're trying to teach you. Because these things are spiritual things. Food being sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality, right? All of these things are inherently spiritual. Scott's going to talk a little bit about this next week when he talks about Jezebel. But I want to pause here, too, and really dig into this question of who are we in this text, right? I think it's easy for us as Christians, especially in America, right, to look at this text and be like, yeah, we Jesus. We the ones that's going to judge, right? We look at this text and we identify more with the judge than the sinner, which is like, whoa, who have we become, right? And, 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 and at best, right, when we look at this text, we can say that we are the people that are being encouraged by God in the beginning for doing good work and then corrected at, at best. But when we look at this text, we really ought to look on these Christians in Pergamum with empathy and say, you know, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to make concessions in my life 
for the sake of being cool, being accepted, right? Being, being, being neutral, right? For the sake of doing what I want to do with my body, right? For the sake of doing what I want to do with my own will, right? We've made these kind of arguments all the time in our personal lives, if we're being honest with ourselves. So we should have this radical empathy for these Christians, especially because these Christians are doing this, right, not just for pleasure, but for survival. They're like, I could survive in a better way if I make some concessions, right? But even in this specific context, Jesus is saying it's not worth it. It's never worth it. Being uncompromising in your faith is so central and key to who we are and our identity as Christians because what it does is it, 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 it allows us to build up the stamina to say no. What do I mean by this? So if somebody, so somebody is sacrificing, so if they're sacrificing food and I see them across the street and they're like, yo, come on, come on over here. And I know what it means for me to do that act. The spirit inside of me is going to say, no, no, it, it's not worth it. Don't do it, right? Because if you do that, you're, you're, you're not going to be fulfilled in the way you think you are. You might be accepted. You might be more welcomed in the society, right? But ultimately, you're not going to have what you're actually looking for, right? You only can have what you're looking for, that true feel by the power in life through the Spirit, right? And, and, and being uncompromising and, and saying no when we really want to say yes, right? That, that, that strengthens our spirit. To overcome, to overcome our flesh, to overcome our sinful nature, to overcome our desire to sin. It strengthens us and it allows us to live, really live, full-fledged lives in Christ, which is what we're meant to do, right? That's what uncompromising faith can do for us. And, and, and it's also important for us in this way, right? Jesus cares deeply about us being holy and set apart. So this really gets to what Paul talks about in, um, I believe it's Romans, when he says we are in the world, but not of the world, right? So yes, we're called to thoughtfully engage. We're called to talk and engage with the world, but we're not called to be like them, right? The church, for example, is, 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 is inclusive of all people. Everyone's welcome in the church. But we're not inclusive of all ideas, right? All ideas are not welcomed here, right? So, 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 so when we come into the church, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, says, I want you now to shift your thinking to my thinking, right? I want you now to think like me, act like me, behave like me, and be the Christian and child of God that I've called you to be. Right? In order to do that, you can't compromise. You can't make concessions. Because when you make those concessions, you're allowing the lies of the enemy to enter your life. And that just isn't the way. That just isn't the way. And, and, and I think it's important to say this too, church. 
We have to be on guard every day of our lives to the lies of the enemy. Because the enemy sees you. He knows what you have. He understands that because you have the spirit within you, he can't win. But that does not mean he will not try to scheme and strategize to get you off. Right? He's always scheming and strategizing. He comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. He's relentless. Even though, even though he knows he cannot win against God. But he believes he can win against you. He genuinely believes that. But we cannot let him win against us if we're in the spirit, if we're uncompromising. It's hard, difficult. But that's why we have to be guarded with the power of God's word, with the power of God's spirit, with the power of our community. Like, bro, sis, I'm tempted right now to say yes to something that I shouldn't say yes to. Come alongside me, please. Help me in this battle so that I can say no. I need help. With my brothers and sisters in Christ, I need help by the power of the spirit. We got to be on guard. We got to be vigilant in this battle because the minute we let our guard down, the enemy sees that as an opportunity to come in and lie. And when our guard's down, the lie can sound a lot like the truth. My God, it can sound a lot like the truth, right? So we got to be on guard. We got to be praying. We got to be, we got to be, we got to be engaging with God's word. We got to be be in, in local churches, talking to God's people so that we can be on guard together as a community so that false ideas won't infiltrate our community the way it did the church in, per in Pergamum, right? It's dangerous. And we have to be uncompromising in our faith so that we can continue to grow in our faith and be more sanctified. And one day we'll have white hair like Alan and be just like Jesus. Right? Uncompromising. He, in verse 16, he goes on to say, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon. It gets a little scary now. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, again, good, good judge, right? Verse 16. The first thing he said before he gets a judgment is what? Repent. He's giving you a chance. Before you get the judgment, you still can be saved. You still can be redeemed. If you repent, and what does repent mean? Repent means, translated fully, it means to change one's mind. Lord, change my mind, change my thinking, change my mentality, change my perspective to see the world the way you see it, to see my life the way you see it. Change my mind, God, because in the changing of my mind, I will think differently, act differently, move differently, behave differently. That's why he says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The stakes are too high. Jesus reminds us of this in Revelation every single week. Your behavior, your habits, the way you live, it does play a role and factor and how you will be judged in the end, right? And, and that matters so deeply 
Jesus. And this is why Revelation pushes us to, to set the present moment in our lives, live in light of the unseen future reality of what's coming. Live like there is an eternal place that we're striving toward. Live like we're running a race, pressing toward the mark to get to Jesus, to get to that, that, that high calling. Live in that way, right? Yes, things might be hard right now, but it's temporary. It's temporary. It will not last always, right? And because we also have the unseen reality of the Holy Spirit living within us, it makes our lives on this earth uh, 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 sustainable. It, 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 it makes it livable, right? It gives us joy. It gives us, it gives us spiritual resources that we can tap anytime we need it to navigate the difficulties and complexities of our lives. We have that at our disposal, right? So we have to live in that way, that, that, that we're living for the not yet while also living in the now. We've got to navigate that tension with the hope that it will be better one day, that, that, that this broken reality and world will not always be my circumstance. It will not always be my testimony. I'm going to a better place. I'm going to a different place. And oh, when I make it over, I'll shout for joy. Right? So he's a good and faithful judge. Therefore, repent. Go to verse 17. So scholars call these um, final words to Revelation. So every time Jesus writes a letter to the, uh, to the churches, he always ends with what they call the victory formula. Right? He always ends by saying, if you overcome, this will be your reward. This is what he says. Let them who have an ear, let them hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give, let me see, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give them a white stone with a new name written on it that no one except, that no one that no one knows except the one who receives it. There we go. So Jesus is offering a promise here. That's threefold. So I'm going to give you hidden manna, a stone, and a stone which, that, that has your name on it, right? So first and foremost, he says, to the one who conquers, right? To the one who overcomes. So this automatically denotes that we have a lot of running to do in this life, right? We have a lot of battles to fight in this life. We're not fighting them alone, right? We got Christ on our side. We have community on our side, but it is a battle. It is a race. Hard, tedious, long. But man, what would life be like if we didn't have God? What would this race be like if we didn't have God as our coach, as our confidant, as our teammate, as, as, as our everything that's empowering us every day to run? What would life be like, right? So yes, there are things that we have to conquer in this life by the power of the Spirit. 
And in this specific context, he's saying, church in Pergamum, you need to overcome your need to compromise on your faith. You need to overcome your need to make concessions when it comes to your faith. You need to overcome the need to, to, to feel accepted, to feel wanted, to feel valued by the culture. Because fundamentally, you're all those things, and even more with me. You're all those things, right? And, and, and the difference with me and them is that I'm unconditional, right? The, the, the circumstance, the culture, the context does not determine my love for you. My love for you is eternal. It is everlasting. It, it, it is so otherworldly that it can quite literally propel and empower you to suffer through and get through any circumstance that's based solely on my love and my power, right? You got it all with me. All that you need and more you have with me, and it's more than you could ever have with the culture, with the world, with the in crowd, right? So you have to overcome this desire to want to be like them and just say, I want to be like you, Lord. I want to be like Jesus in every single way. And when you overcome that desire, you get three gifts. So in the in, in first century context, right, anytime you wanted to enter into a festival, you needed a white stone to enter into it, right? So Jesus is essentially saying, when you make it over, over to those, to, to those hidden shores, right, you come on into the gate you're going to be welcomed into a heavenly banquet where we are commemorating your union with the bridegroom, with Jesus Christ, right? Can you imagine the DJ at heaven's party? Songs are going to be sang. We're going to be dancing on a dance floor because we made it over. And he says that you're going to have, your, you're going to have a new name written on it. This new name, right, it, 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 it signifies that when we make it into heaven, we're going to be given a new status, a heavenly status, with our heavenly bodies and our heavenly mindset. So that the bro these broken earthly bodies will be, will be washed away. And now we are new creatures, heavenly creatures, with Christ forevermore. Let the church say amen. My God, my God, right? And then he says, this is interesting, right? He says you also would get some hidden manna. This, this is fascinating because... Hit, we, we remember manna from the Old Testament. So in the wilderness, God provides Israel with this manna. What is this? That's what it, it translates as. So he provides them with this manna, with, the, with, with this nourishment that allows them to survive, that allows them to keep, to keep going. And it says hidden manna. So essentially what it says is you will know that you've made it over when you're given this hidden manna. And I think it has something to do with the food sacrifice. Because catch this, if you keep eating those sacrificed foods, it will give you temporary significance, it will give you temporary satisfaction, but it will exclude you from participation in, in eternity, right? So the temporary might make you feel good now, but it will exclude you later on, which again is why Jesus says it's not worth it. It is so not worth it. Temporary momentary happiness 
does not trump eternity, right? In this hidden manna, it, it, it is a sign that these sacrificed animals, they're good for now, but this hidden manna, this is a sign that you've made it into heaven, that you're with me now. Well, you don't have to, you don't even have to deal with the temptation of fitting in or religious persecution. You're now in heaven where all the brokenness of the world is gone. And you're with me now for eternity. Last thing I'll say as the worship team comes back up. I'm reminded of John and his words. John in John chapter 1 said that he was in the spirit. And because he was in the spirit, it allowed him to get a vision from Jesus while he was in prison. And I think one of the things that we have to continue to, 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 to think on as we're in Revelation is that God has gifted us the spirit. And being in the spirit allows us to, to have a spiritual framework to see things not as they are, but as God sees them. And being engulfed in that spiritual framework is going to be key for us if we're going to be uncompromising in our faith. Seeing things not just through a worldly lens, but seeing them also through a spiritual lens. Right? It's going to be very, very important. I think Revelation continues to push us to that. The world is hard. Life is hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. But if you see it through a different framework, if you see it through a different lens, you will understand why, you're at, why, why I'm asking you to do the things I'm asking you to do. Because the stakes are exponentially higher than what you think they are in your present circumstances. Right? So live by the Spirit, in the Spirit, through that spiritual framework, I think this, is, this, this will allow us to see things how God sees them. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Thank you, God, just for being our, being our Savior, being our Lord. And you know, God, thank you for being a good judge. You are the holiest judge. You are the fairest judge that we can ever ask for. And God, we thank you for giving us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, to shift our thinking, to change our ways, so that we can be all that you called us to be. So God, as scary as it can be sometimes to see you as a judge, I pray that we see you as a fair and good judge. I pray that we, that we, can, that we can receive the correction you have for our lives, corporately and individually, through a spiritual lens, through the framework of heaven, so that we can change for the better and change into the children you called us to be. Thank you, God, for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.